0: day is mark 8 34 to 38 uh, but we will be starting on verse 31 for some context so mark 8:31, uh, when he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again he spoke plainly about this and peter took him aside and began to rebuke him but when Jesus turned and looked to his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny it themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is God's word.
1: Yesterday, my, uh, my daughter Juniper and I were in the living room uh, laying on the floor wrestling and then uh, also reading some books. And Junie picked up one of the books I was reading on the floor um, and uh, wanted to read it to me. Now, she's only three. She can't really read yet, but she recites books really well. But this was an old classic by the old late English pastor, John Stott, and she hadn't read this one yet. So I'm sure that she didn't know how this story went. So I was very curious to see how she would tell this story. And she opened it up. She goes... Okay, I wanna read you a story. There was once a man named Mr. Rogers. And I was like super into the story. I was like, okay, I'm in, like, I'm in, tell me. And she said, not joking, literally, she said, and the bad guys killed him, and blood came out, the end. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, whoa, wait, whoa, time out. First of all, that's kinda graphic and morbid, but more importantly, a story can't end that way. You can't just end a story that way. That's not, that's not how stories end, they just don't end that way. That's not how you tell stories, that's not how stories go. And she looked at me and she said, yes they do. <laughs> and I said, no, stories have to have meaning. What does your story mean? I wasn't this forceful, but I was, I was kinda like, actually riled up, honestly, about it, I like, what does this story even mean? Now she doesn't say the word um, doesn't, she says doesn't. And she said, it doesn't mean anything. He dies the end. <laughs> and I said, well, you. someone has to teach you. I'm going to have to teach you. We have to teach you how to tell better stories because that was kind of a bummer. That's not that as a bummer story, Junie. Humans are meaning-making creatures. It's what separates us from every other living thing. We must find meaning in life. Plants don't do this. Aardvarks don't do this, lions don't do this, ants don't do this, we are storied creatures. We tell stories to find meaning. We have to find meaning in life, especially in suffering. Robert McKee, in his famous book, the book, many say, on screenwriting, appropriately called, his book is called Story, He writes that the stories we tell and make in movies and in books and all of that are not actually an escape from reality into mere entertainment. Like movies, he would argue, a good story in a movie and a good story in a book aren't just mere entertainment to make you escape reality. No, that's not how stories work. He says, quote, story isn't flight from reality, but a vehicle that carries us on our search for reality, our best effort to make sense out of the anarchy of existence. He says that we actually have a story problem. There's not enough good stories in the world today. We need stories to carry us into our own selves, into our own reality, so that we can make sense of our own worlds. Not only do humans need meaning, we need story to give life this meaning. We need story to give life shape, to help us figure out reality. Now, we've been in the book of Mark, on and off since we moved into this building, which we've been a, here a year now. Now I say on and off because we'll do it during ordinary time, and then we move into a series like we did through Easter and Lent and that sort of things, so and we move back to Mark. Now, the gospel, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are a different kind of literature than the rest of the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament are letters. They're explicit moral teachings and advice to particular communities about Christian faith and practice. But the Gospels simply tell the story of Jesus. Well, maybe it's not that simple. I shouldn't say simple. They tell the story of Jesus. The Gospels, especially Matthew, now they do contain some stories of Jesus teaching and share with us beautiful, explicit, didactic passages. But by and large, the rest, like the rest of the Old Testament, the Gospel is a story. The Gospels are story. And stories form our values and moral sensibilities in more indirect and complex ways. Stories teach us how to see the world. Good stories do this. When you are in a good story, in a good book, or in a good film, you're immersed in the story. You forget that you're watching a movie, and you're in it, and you see yourself in it. it teaches, stories teach us what to fear and what to hope for. See, in stories, we know that monsters aren't just monsters in a good story. Mountains aren't just mountains. The multiverse isn't just time travel, right? In stories, these these things mean something deeper, which is why I think a good sermon or a good commentary on a gospel act more like a think piece, helping you see what's under the surface, opening your eyes to meaning that you didn't know was there. It's like a Jordan Peele movie. You need a think piece after a Jordan Peele movie. I haven't seen the new one. I've had friends, especially my friend Janet, who we always talk about movies together. She's like, have you seen this movie? I'm like, no, I have two kids. I ain't seen this movie until it comes out on like, DVD, not DVD, but streaming. Like, I'm not going to see this movie for a while. But every single time you see a movie like this, you, you need a think piece on this, okay? Because what think pieces do is they tell you about the writer of this screenplay or the director, about social commentary going on in and around this, and also about humanity. This is what they do, and I say all this because what we've come to, as Matteo read, is the story climax in Mark. All the scenes have built to this scene. What Jesus says and does here cannot be undone. That's why you know you've, met, you've reached the story climax. What has been done, cannot be undone. There's a collision course that's happening in this story, and you can't go back. It will set him on a collision course with all of the powers involved in Mark's gospel. The religious powers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the political powers of Rome, and the demonic powers. Now, if you remember it from the very beginning of Mark, the first time Jesus speaks, he says in Mark 1.15, The time has come, the kingdom of God is near. It's as if the kingdom of God is breaking in, and as the kingdom of God is breaking in, Jesus calls disciples, and then he fights, or he um, confronts the demonic powers. He performs an exorcism. He heals. He, He destroys or reverses sickness. He confronts the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the religious leaders. What he's doing, Jesus is like, confronting the powers, and all of these powers will combine at the event of the cross. And Jesus says, I'm going there. Now, this story, as we read it, we're supposed to ask the question, what is the meaning of Jesus going to the cross? What is the meaning of this cross? What's most shocking is that Jesus redefines discipleship to himself by following the same collision course with the powers. Now, I'll explain what this means throughout the sermon. But what I want to do today is look closely at Jesus' words about the cross, his cross and our cross. Remember, see how he says, um, take up your cross. So he makes it personal about our cross. I want to talk about the cross and its meaning. I want to talk about the call Jesus makes to follow him now and how we might see the meaning of this in our lives today. And I, I like to do that, but I want to share a story about um, this one time I thought I was going to get beat up in the TL um, by a congregant. Uh, so I want to tell that story. I want to talk, talk about how the cross imagery has become actually too domesticated and maybe a more appropriate way of seeing it. So I want to share a couple of stories as we do this. Last year, uh, when we began Mark's gospel, I began by teaching on what discipleship is according to Jesus. If you were here about a year ago, you might remember this. At the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus calls disciples to himself. And I said this. I said that the word disciple in both its Greek and Hebrew roots means student or learner. Do you guys remember this? To be disciples, to be a learner. One who learns in active fellowship, meaning the best word we have for disciple is probably the word Apprentice. And I said, I I gave you this quote from Dallas Willard. Quote, a good working definition of a disciple or apprentice is simply someone who has decided to be with another person under appropriate conditions in order to become capable of doing what that person does or become what that person is. And so at the very beginning, when Jesus calls disciples to himself, we said discipleship is simply being with another person to become what that person is and is like. And to be able to do what that person does. This is what discipleship is. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. You follow Jesus to become good at what Jesus is good at. To become like him. And then we ask this question. This like million dollar question. What is Jesus good at that we want to be good at? Now if you say carpentry, that's a wrong answer. It's like Jesus is a carpenter a carpenter or whatever. What is Jesus good at that we want to be good at? If being a disciple is wanting to be with someone in order to become like them and capable of doing what they did, what is, what is it that makes Jesus so alluring? What is Jesus good at? You're like, I want to follow Jesus to become good at like that. To be good at what he's good at, I want to become good at that. What is Jesus good at? And the answer, we said, was this. Jesus was good at living in the kingdom in the presence of God, and he applies that kingdom reality to the good of others and even makes it possible for them to enter it themselves. Jesus is compelling because he lives so adequately, perfectly into the kingdom of God to where it makes it available for other people to join him into the kingdom of God. Being a disciple of Jesus means we're with him learning how to do that. And so when you follow Jesus, he teaches you how to do that. Now, I don't disagree with any of that. I think that's right. I think that's exactly what it means to follow Jesus. I think that's the essence of discipleship for sure. However... The way Mark tells the story of Jesus, this is important to listen, is that that definition of following Jesus was early adopter terms, and by the middle of Mark's story, the price goes way up. At first, it's follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I will teach you how to do what I do. And then, in the middle, and we heard, from, uh, we heard this last week, I had Mateo read part of that, where Jesus says, I'm going to the cross, and Peter rebukes him, he's like, No, that is absolute insanity, and we'll talk about why that was so insane in a second. You're not going, kings don't go to the cross, messiahs don't go to the cross, that, that is not your destiny. If you think that, stop being such a downer. That's not how the story is going to end. The price, and not only that, Jesus says, no, not only am I going to the cross, but if you want to follow me, you have to go to the cross too. Mark 834. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with the disciples. Now notice, before Jesus just called disciples to himself, those whom he wanted, but now he calls the crowd in on this part. Everyone gets entryway into becoming a disciple by this. He said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. I'm going to a cross. If you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and you must take up a cross as well. Now, here's the thing. Because of the resurrection and because of Christendom, meaning the power of the Christian story to reshape the entire world, if you don't believe me, read Tom Holland's masterful work called Dominion. It's like just a 1,600-page light read or whatever. And he talks about how the cross reshaped the world. If you believe in ethics today, you believe in the ethics that we have today and the rights that we have today because of Christianity. Full stop period. He, he's an atheist, but I've heard, I've heard through, the, heard through some people that he has now since become a Christian. Before, he was an atheist historian saying, the, the cross has reshaped the entire world as we know it. The only reason we get to the, the, the weak have rights, the oppressed are humans too, is only through the cross. It's only through Christianity. Okay, so I'd say because of the resurrection and because of Christendom that reshaped the world, the cross doesn't carry the same emotional and political and social shame in a way that it did when Jesus said this to his disciples. So I say, take up your cross. You're like, yeah, I got one on my neck. Like, I took up my cross. I have it. Or like, yeah, my cross is like my, my spouse. It's like my cross to bear. <laughs> I wouldn't say that out loud, but the prayer team knows. Go up there every week. Or whatever it is, right? We think that that's like, And there's a sense that the suffering in this life is is a cross that we bear, but that's not the sense that Jesus is talking about here. We don't hear this the same way that they did when Jesus said it, and therefore we're not scandalized by this. We don't wrestle with this. We wouldn't curse at Jesus because he said this, but Peter did. We don't hear this in the same way. How do we talk about the cross? Now, At this point, I'm going to take a deep breath and give you a very explicit trigger warning. Because after, during the cross and about a few hundred years after the cross, you were actually not allowed to talk about the cross because it was so scandalous. But we don't have any sort of residue from that, we don't don't understand what that means. So how in the world could we start to reclaim the scandal of the cross? James Cone, the most influential African American theologian in the last 50 years, wrote a book some time ago called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And in this book he argues and he suggests that if we are to really if are really going to see the cross, for the shame of what it meant, the gut-turning imagery it brought up in the followers of Jesus, in America especially, you have to see the cross as a lynching tree. He says you actually, the lynching tree interprets the cross and the cross interprets the lynching tree. You don't understand the lynching tree unless you understand the cross and you can't understand the cross in America unless you understand the lynching tree. Now, I could have, but I, I won't and I wouldn't, but I could have put a picture of a lynching on the screen. But that would be way too shameful. That would be way too graphic. I saw a couple of pictures preparing for this and read a couple of stories and like bile got into my throat because my stomach turned so much. And that's the point. It's too stomach-turning, it's too scandalous, it's too inappropriate, it's inappropriate, it's almost inappropriate for me to even say that, that the lynching done in our country to black bodies over and over again and the suffering they went through, and they did that. In America, the point was, if you get out of line, this is what will happen to you. That is exactly the point of the cross. When Jesus says, I'm going to the cross to suffer and die, if you want to be my followers, you must go too, it was so graphic, it was so horrific that you could almost taste the bile in your own throat. The cross, like a lynching, was not just about torture. Because if it was the case, it would be like a lot of governments do and they do it behind closed doors. No, that's not what this was. It was about power. It was to scare any would-be dissenter, any... Slave that would dare challenge the power of slave owners, you saw it and it was supposed to make you deathly afraid. Anyone who would dare challenge the power of Rome, look at the cross. That will be you if you dare challenge it. It was terror. And so Jesus says, Take up your lynching rope and follow me. And we go, What in the world are you saying? Why? Would you say that? That is so morbid, so intense. Now remember Jesus' opening words. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. God's kingdom of love is come near. And because of that, God's kingdom of love will confront all other kingdoms, all other centers of human powers that stand opposed to God's power. But God does not come. Jesus does not come with violence. Jesus is actually non-violent. He doesn't come like everyone else comes. This is why he says, no, kings go to a cross through military might and power, or kings go to a throne through military might and power. Jesus says, I'm going to a cross, I'm gonna take a donkey into Jerusalem to do so. That is not how this story goes. And because you and I, and the disciples and we'll see this in a second, because if you read on, they actually argue about this because the disciples, and honestly us, because we desire success and comfort, we won't risk siding with God's kingdom of love because we're too afraid. We're way too afraid of what could happen to us. If we honestly sided with God's kingdom of love and non-retaliation and servant-heartedness and giving our life for the sake of others, we're too afraid of what of being crushed by our careers and the advancement of society. We're too afraid of being crushed by the powers. We're too afraid of being crushed. We're too afraid of losing our life. What if, what if they take my children? What if my family's in danger? What if, what if I lose my job? What if, what if I don't get the things I want in this life? We're too afraid, and so Jesus makes his followers confront what the powers could ultimately do to you to help you decide, do you want the kingdom of God? And so one socio-political commentator says this, quote, the threat to punish by death is the bottom line of the power of the state. This is Roman state. Fear of this threat keeps the dominant power intact. By resisting this fear and pursuing the kingdom practice, even at the cost of death, the disciple contributes to the shattering of the power's reign in in death of death in history. So what Jesus is doing is like this. The worst thing that can happen to you, if you follow me, is they will know you're my follower and they will put you on a cross because they're gonna put me on a cross. And I'm gonna go to the cross. I'm actually gonna the cross for you. And you too have to carry a cross. Some of you, he's actually preparing them to be martyrs because most of them, all of them except for one of them, would die as a martyr. And he's saying, you have to be prepared to die like I'm gonna die. You have to be willing to give up your life. And when you do, when you resist the power, that itself would turn power on its ear, on its head. It would, like a judo flip move, it will use the power against them, it would crush, it will fall and collapse in on itself. This is what it will do. But you have to confront your own fears. What's the worst thing that you can fear? Well, the cross, a lynching, public shame, the loss of everything. Jesus says, deny yourself, go there, go there and follow me. Go there in your mind and in your heart. Go there. Resolve. That's the cost. Follow me. Jesus doesn't simply want us to do that so we lose our life. He wants to do it so we would save our lives. That's that's the juxtaposition. That's the paradox. You go after all of these things and you keep trying to save your life. You keep trying to buy your life. You actually won't have a life. You won't have a soul. You won't have a self. You'll lose yourself. Actually, the word uh, soul is psyche, where we get psychology, where we get the self-personhood. Jesus says, if you actually go after these things in life yourself, you will lose yourself. But if you give your life away, the way I am, you actually find a self. You actually be a self. There's a sense that what Jesus was calling his followers to do was not to fear death of being a martyr. Not, the, not fear the death of, brought on by the powers due to the association with the gospel, The gospel challenges every power that sets itself against the power of God. It does so through suffering and servanthood, not violence and not revenge. It it does so by Jesus saying, I'm not going to play your game. I'm actually going to serve and I'm actually going to suffer and not retaliate. See, when the New Testament writers talk about imitating Jesus, now if you keep reading all the letters of the New Testament, and they all refer back to the life of Jesus, obviously, because they're Christians. When they talk about imitating Jesus or becoming like Jesus, it's never anything Jesus did like work as a carpenter. So you would think when Paul was talking about being a tent maker, he would say, I'm gonna be a tent maker like Jesus was a carpenter. He doesn't do that. It's very interesting, it's right there. The illustration's right there, he could've done it. He doesn't do that. When they talk about rest, they don't talk about I'm gonna Sabbath because Jesus Sabbath, they don't do that. They don't talk about healing because Jesus healed or being poor because Jesus was poor. You would think that when the writers talked about praying, they would talk about imitating Jesus fasting and praying in the wilderness, but they never did that. It's so fascinating when you read the letters, when they refer back to Jesus, they're not talking about imitation on these, all these levels. Now, not to say that that's wrong or bad, because it's, it's not, but it's very fascinating and interesting they don't do that, but only one instance when they go back to the life of Jesus, they're going, we're gonna be like Jesus in this way, and this one way every single New Testament writer talks about imitating Jesus in this way, and it's this, bearing the cross. We're gonna be like Jesus, how, he was poor, how he was a carpenter, how he walked on water, none of that stuff. Even how he prayed. They didn't even go pray because Jesus prayed like this we were praying like this. They didn't do that. They did this. We're gonna be like Jesus in this, in this way. We're gonna bear the cross. We're gonna take up our cross. I don't know if there's any sort of like visceral thing happening in your body. I hope there is because that's the point. A few years ago, several years ago actually, um, our church was serving in the Tenderloin together. And a, and a congregate came up to me. Actually, he's a really close friend of mine. His name is Seth. Still goes to our church. And um, I was just getting to know Seth at that time. Um, I asked him for permission to share the story. He said, yes, do it. Um, so just so you know. I, I always saw him sitting in the back of the Swedish American Hall, but, um, but I didn't really know him that well yet. He was just kind of kept himself and he kind of sat back. So he he sees me and we're serving the tea, like our church was serving the tea, and he comes up to me and he kind of pushes me into a doorway. I say kind of because he didn't like push me, but he kind of like like did that thing where he's like, "I I to, I was like, "Oh," and I like backed into this like I was like in this in this like doorway, in the and and I and he comes to me and goes. Um, you said, and he was really frustrated and um, we laugh about this now, but he's like, you said God is not everything. You said that in the sermon. And I was like, what, what? He goes, you said God was not everything. And he was like, like viscerally, viscerally mad, and I honestly thought I was um, gonna get beat up. <laughs> I was like, I'm, here I go. Like, Lord, you know, here, make me a martyr, that sort of um, And now, it's ironic, because if you know Seth, he's like seriously one of the most kind, loving people that you'll ever meet in your life, so it's so funny that this happened. And he's like, and I said, yeah, well, God is not everything. He's not a tree or a rock. He's not you or me. He's not everything. And he's like, and he gets in my face. He says, God is everything or he's nothing at all. And I said, God is love. And he almost took a swing at me. He was so mad. Now, he tells me right now, he actually texts me. He goes, goes, what I didn't know was the reason why he was so mad was that he was formulating an idea of who God was. And in one fell swoop, I undid all of it and he was infuriated. See, I tell this story because, I love that story, but I tell that story because unless you're like really grappling with what it means to take up your cross, unless you might even be angry or like, I mean, look at the disciples. All of them were confused or really angry. This means something. This doesn't mean, take up your cross. Okay, that was a good sermon. Thank you for that today. Pastor, glad you're back. That's not it at all. It's like, if you're not wrestling with these words of Jesus, and I've wrestled with them, and, and they're really difficult words. We're, we, we, if we are not wrestling with it, we're not, we haven't heard it yet. It's not easy. If this is easy for you to take up your cross, you're probably not doing it right. And this is the point, Jesus tells you to die. Whatever relationship you have to power, to status, to the powers that run a very powerful nation, a very powerful world, all of these must die. This will bring up so many questions for you right now, like what does that mean about my job? What does that mean about money? What does that mean about possessions? What does that mean about my hopes and my dreams for my future? And you might not have all those answers right now and that's also kind of the point. If you're not viscerally moved by Jesus' words, you're not hearing them right. You're supposed to wrestle with them. I have been wrestling with these words for 25 plus years and I'm still, this, these last few weeks, still wrestling with these words. Still wrestling. They still challenge me. They still convict me. They still make me feel like, I don't know if I understand. I think I understand. Because there is a sense that following Jesus, now oh, hear me, and I hope you hear me rightly, but maybe not, but I'll say it anyways, there is a sense that following Jesus will radicalize you. Not to a political party, not to nationalism or Christian nationalism, not even Christendom, but will radicalize you in the kingdom of God. Now that always means nonviolence because Jesus is nonviolent. Paul was nonviolent. He literally took beatings and lashings and never retaliated. That will always mean nonviolence, This fall, we're doing a prayer series, and I'm really excited about this series. Part of this series will be inviting some of you to meet in places in our city that have experienced historic injustice. And we're going to these places to pray out loud through the Lord's Prayer, all of us together, circling up, praying. We're not going with signs, we're not going with big crosses, we're not going with matching t-shirts, but it will feel like us stepping out of our very comfortable, air-conditioned walls. And it will be confronting the powers. There's a sense that incrementally, we have to become more and more radicalized, more and more willing to step out and to say, I'm with Jesus, and his way is so weird and so different that any other way that you do or follow Now, what might it mean to be take up your cross personally? A couple thoughts on this. Whenever the New Testament writers talk about Jesus' death on the cross and apply it to our lives, there are two overwhelming consistencies. Whenever they say the, the cross and us bearing our cross, there are two overwhelming consistencies, and they're this. Servanthood replaces dominion And forgiveness absorbs hostility. Whenever the New Testament church wrestles with what it means to follow Jesus and take up our cross, it always, and Jesus will literally go through this in a second, servanthood replaces dominion. He will tell his disciples when they were arguing about who is the greatest, that the greatest among you will be the servant. Jesus said, I have not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many servanthood rather than dominion. And forgiveness absorbs, I'm gonna, hostility. I'm gonna read you a couple passages, just so you, you, you believe me. John 15, 12, this, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. This is Jesus talking. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is how John interprets this, this passage of Jesus in his letter first, in First John chapter three, verse 16 through 18. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. Now, that might mean to you, like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go die for my, 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 someone in church right now. I'm gonna, do, I'm gonna die for them. And then they apply it very practically, almost too practically. You're like, whoa, well, I wanted something a little bit more intense than this. But here it is. If anyone has material possession, do you have extra money in your bank account? Savings? Two jackets? 50 jackets? Because you live in San Francisco and every day is a jacket day? If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister, now the brother or sister is very specific. It's a Christian brother or sister. Not that we're not to serve the outside world. We are. But this is very specific to how we love one another in the church. And the scriptures say the way we love each other in the church should be contagious where people want to become part of the church to see how they love each other. If anyone sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and truth. See, they're taking this, like, deny yourself, take up your cross. Jesus said, lay your life down for your brothers or sisters, for your friends, and then John says, and so if you have material, extra stuff, and you see someone in need, give to them. Romans 15, one through three. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, And not to please ourselves. To deny ourselves, take up our cross. We don't live to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good. To build them up for even Christ did not please himself. That Christ did not please himself is taken from Mark's passage where Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom. So they're taking that and they're recapitulating and they're saying, what does that mean? Well, it's, we're going to, We're going to please our neighbors. We're going to love and serve our neighbors. We're going to think about our neighbors even more than we think about ourselves. We're going to deny ourselves. And all the things we want to please our neighbors, our our brothers. And this could be literally our neighbors or the people in this city. One more passage, Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example therefore as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The way that these writers are recapitulating the death of Jesus is that on the cross Jesus was dying to forgive us of our sins. We accept this forgiveness of Jesus and then we turn and we offer others the same forgiveness because we have forgiven such a great debt by God. All of our sins are washed away so we can forgive these sins. They can be actually put to the cross as well. Now, the way the early church, who many witnessed Jesus' crucifixion, saw his death on the cross as a model for our discipleship to him was by, ma- by becoming a servant as, and being uh, being a servant, marking our discipleship. So our discipleship of Jesus looks like being a servant, living for the sake of others, dying to please others and not ourselves. Now I say dying, meaning dying to things that we want in life or want to do. This also means forgiving, as Christ forgave you on the cross. Jesus went to the cross, the most humiliating way to die, forgiving, and the Lord is our model. Now, a, a pastoral takeaway, and then I will end. When Jesus speaks about those who lose their life, he's not just talking about physical death. He's also talking about there's other deaths that we die before the final death comes. There's other parts of our lives that need to die so that our, we can actually live. Let me share a few examples. Is, my, is a desire for money preventing you from being more compassionate on, in your job? Perhaps your need for wealth needs to die. Are you so addicted to your own comfort that you don't allow other people's needs to impinge on yours? Maybe your selfishness needs to die so that you can experience a rebirth of generosity. Is pride keeping you from listening to other people's constructive criticism and therefore stunting your spiritual growth? Maybe these things need to die too. These things could be called what we call in Christian circles, if you've been around, is dying to yourself. What keeps you from being more loving, more free, more mature, and more open to following God's will? Can you let those things die? If you do, you will find your life. Because dying to self means living for God. And Jesus says, if you die, you will live. If you lose, you will find. This is in part what Jesus means about those who Desperately try to save their lives. The kind of saving holds onto the parts of ourselves that keep us enslaved to old ways of doing things. Trying to keep these things alive leads to death. Letting them die allows you to live. Now, I want to close by saying that discipleship is hard. And the the call to discipleship is given again and again in Mark's gospel, and there is not the slightest hint in this gospel that the requirements of God must be tailored or realistically limited to our human weakness. Rather, the demand for self-sacrificial discipleship is uncompromising. I'm so challenged by this. I'm still challenged by this today. The invitation of Jesus is always to go deeper and deeper in our discipleship. Not because Jesus wants our destruction, but because he wants our freedom and our life. But remember, this story doesn't end here. The disciples don't understand this. I write to this Jesus, and we'll we'll get to this next week or the week after. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a mountain where he shows him his glory. We call this the transfiguration. The father affirms Jesus' words about the cross because they don't understand him. So the father says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Listen to him. The words of the cross, the words about discipleship, they're all true. Listen to him. And then they come off the mountain and, and there's a boy who is, who is under the spell or under the power of a demon. And the disciples can't cast this demon out. And so Jesus... The way the Mark is telling the story is how will this demon of unbelief be cast out? Nobody believes that this is the cause of discipleship. Nobody believes that Jesus is going to the cross. Nobody believes this is what being a follower of Jesus means. Who will finally cast this demon out? Who will finally allow people to see what Jesus is doing? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus delivers this boy. Jesus allows this boy who can't hear to hear again. The, the, the demon makes him deaf and mute. He can't hear or speak. This means something. It just doesn't mean that. It is that, but it means something else. Everyone in the story can't hear these words. And Jesus removes the demon. This boy looks like he's dead, and he raises his boy up from the dead, and allows him to hear again. Do you see all of the point? Jesus is like, I'm the one that can do this. You don't see this? You don't see this is the cost of discipleship? You don't see that, that this is what, you don't hear what I'm saying? I can do this by my power. I can unstop your ears. I can open your eyes. I could have you see this. And what, what that means is that we don't have the power to take up our own cross by willpower. We only have it by gospel power, by seeing what Jesus has done. We can't forgive with our own willpower, but we, and we can't serve in our own strength. We have to see Jesus, his power, his forgiveness, his service to us, and from this flows all power. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the way that this story is written and told, and we need this again, this call to discipleship again and again and again, and I pray. That is those that I speak to um, before I left on break on a weekly basis that are wrestling with the words of Jesus and the way of Jesus, I pray that there be this this clarity that happens today and by the power of your spirit that you would open our eyes, unstop our ears, remove demonic activity from our lives and become all-powerful Lord of our lives as we look to the cross and see you in Jesus' name.